Hello, this is Daniel Poppy, pastor at Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We hope this message will help you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so by visiting theroadfc.org and click on the giving link. I missed being with you all last week, you know, but it was a good time to be with family, to be away. We enjoyed time with Melissa's family who live in Pocatello, Idaho. And that's always a fun drive. I, you know, people complain about Wyoming, driving across Wyoming, but I kind of like it. Although the construction made it a little bit more interesting this time. But like that landscape, uh, I, kind of, I kind of updated our sermon graphic this week with the horizon because I was looking at the horizon a lot this week as we drove. You know, and every time I take a break from the normal routines of life, of the normal routines of work, the normal routines of even here what we do at church, I'm reminded how important it is to have perspective. And sometimes how hard it is to fight for. You know, we have to fight for perspective at times. You know, because we tend to, you know, get in the moment of the things that we need to do, our, our responsibilities, we know our schedules, so it's one footstep at a time. But there's nothing like some good windshield time to give us perspective. You know, as we are looking here at the words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount, and specifically, we're in the Beatitudes here again this morning. These give us perspective on how the kingdom of heaven declares itself. And we pray that that perspective this morning would be working in us and churning in us. You know, last week, uh, Grace got us started really well in this series as she talked about comfort and, you know... um, She shared this quote, Scripture gives us new ways to think about complex ideas by giving them vivid pictures to make these ideas easier to connect with. And then she shared the idea of the shelter in the storm when we need comfort and how the church can be that for us. But how the church is not just this building, this sanctuary, but the church is you and I and our relationships with one another. You know, we receive comfort when we receive that mercy from one another. It's not something that we have to do. Comfort just is. The kingdom provides comfort. We don't need to do anything first. There's no prerequisites. The comfort of God is just something that is with us always. Sometimes we just need to shake off the dust and get some perspective and recognize it's been there all along. You know, but we do this. As we read the Beatitudes even, we tend to do what we always do. We tend to start to turn it into a formula, right? If you want, if we do A and if we do B, maybe in the right order, in the right way, then the outcome of C will come to us, right? Our minds, our environment, our workplaces, our experiences, they turn us into these formulaic people. If we want C, then we just need to get better at doing A and B. But we just can't think ourselves in 
to change. And we can't just fake it, you know, until we make it, although sometimes that works out in different perspectives or different parts of our lives. We might be able to do it for short periods of time, but God's grace, his comfort and mercy, they just don't live in one place. They don't just live in our minds or just live in our hands. They need to take up residence, yes, in our minds, but also in our hearts, in our bodies, in our activities, in our priorities, in our ways of moving through the world. The Beatitudes give us this opportunity to attempt to flesh out that tension of being and not just doing. We have to balance that together. I apologize, but sometime, one time somebody told me the Beatitudes are called the Beatitudes, not the do-attitudes. Uh, in other words, just saying, hey, these just tell us how to be. But our being needs to manifest itself. And if it doesn't, it doesn't begin to really uh, find a home. It doesn't begin to shape us and form us. So yes, the Beatitudes state what the kingdom is and what is just imperative. But we also hope that those truths in our life and our heart would turn into our action and the way we interact in the world. You know, I hope that throughout this series on the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, followed by our next series, which I'm excited about, The Jesus Way, where we're hearing Jesus and his healings, followed by the sermon series that will lead us into Advent called The Mystery, where we hear the parables and we consider the mystery of our kingdom. That as we go through these series, these sermons, these messages, that the Holy Spirit would speak to us anew and revive us. Revive us. You know, sometimes we're like, you know, that stubborn cell phone that it just, it's not working the way it used to. I can't, the Wi-Fi is not working, whatever it is. And we just got to turn it off and turn it on again. Let's allow the Spirit to renew our hearts this morning, our minds, our motivations. Maybe give us a reboot that we need. As we're making our way through the Beatitudes, Grace covered the first three. We'll be looking at the fourth, fifth, and sixth Beatitude this morning. But I'd like to look at this passage as a whole, just for context. But we'll be in uh, verses 6, 7, and 8. But let's... Uh, Prepare to hear the word. Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. If you'd like to turn there, it'll be on the screens for you as well. Let me pray for us as we begin. Heavenly Father, Lord of hosts, open our hearts and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit. That as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, that we may hear with joy what you have to say for us and to us and in us this morning. Amen. Amen. Matthew 5, starting in verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up onto the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he began to speak, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Your reward is great in heaven. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. The preamble to the U.S. Constitution says, we, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, that we do ordain and establish this Constitution of the United States of America. Theologian Thomas Long describes the Beatitudes in this way. The constitutional preamble is an introductory statement that defines the essence of the nation's vision of itself. And it expresses the sort of citizenry it hopes to embody. In a similar manner, the Sermon on the Mount is the constitution of Jesus and his church. The Beatitudes are its preamble. The Beatitudes proclaim what is, in the light of the kingdom of heaven, unassailably true. I love that. You know, I'm not necessarily a constitutional scholar. Maybe you guys aren't either. But, you know, we are steeped and formed by our national identity. We live every day benefiting from the ideals, the systems, and the structures of our nation, right? But in the same way... Our first and primary identity is in the kingdom of God. And it should be steeped and formed by our kingdom identity that we find in the Sermon on the Mount in the Beatitudes. We should live every day benefiting from the ideals, the systems, and the structures of the kingdom of heaven. And God knows we need this reminder we tend to keep our heads down, focused on one or two steps in front of us, just to kind of make it through our routines and our days. Unless we find some good windshield time like I had on our travels this week, it's easy for, to forget to raise our eyes to the horizon and to see where we're going in the first place. The Beatitudes can do that for us. You know the, the, the Narnia books by C.S. Lewis? Do we have any fans? Every, any? Is anyone not familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia? Okay, good. <laughs> you know, there's this beautiful exchange that happens between Lucy and Aslan that reminds me of this. You know, the circumstances of the evil that the characters are facing and the daunting challenges ahead are really weighing down on Lucy, the youngest of the four siblings, and in an effort to motivate her, Aslan takes her aside and leads her to a hillside and invites her to look, to see far off Aslan's country, 
He said, there's my country. It's where all things will be made right, where no more strife and no more evil will exist. You know, but it's far off. It's across a valley. There's untold miles, challenges between here and there. And Lucy says, oh, Aslan, will you tell us how to get from our country into yours? And Aslan replies, that's how you do it. You get in that car and you go. <laughs> tell us how to get from our country into yours. And Aslan replies, I will be telling you all the time but I won't tell you how long it'll take or how short the way may be. Only that there are challenges and there's a river between here and there. But fear not, for I am the great bridge builder. Isn't that beautiful? He is the great bridge builder. So let's lift our eyes. Let's look at the horizon. Let's remind ourselves of God's country, what it's like. And let's be committed to the journey. You know, we often hear at Emmaus, we refer to the kingdom and how it operates in our world and as kind of being countercultural. You know, our churches should be reminding us that as citizens of the kingdom, we oftentimes work in ways counter to the culture around us. And sometimes we talk, call this, we give this a name called the upside down kingdom of God. So in order to fully embrace that this morning, as, I, as we consider these next three Beatitudes, I'd like to go in reverse order. So instead of going verse 6, 7, and 8, I would like to go 8, 7, 6. Sound all right? Verse 8, God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. Purity of hearts, no problem, right? You know, many of us who grew up in the church, we might be having flashbacks right now because the term purity may carry baggage for you. You know, if there's one thing the church has been good about, it's defining what pure and unpure actions and motivations are. And then working towards motivating us into doing and not doing the appropriate things. And that's good. The church should be reforming us. The Spirit of God inspiring us through one another should be affecting our actions, should be affecting the way we live our lives. But some of us may have baggage because all we heard was the do and don't, do and don't, and we didn't see the love. We didn't feel it. I, for one, experienced that that approach of behavioral management just never made it to the heart. Because we know that behaviors don't drive the heart, the heart drives behavior, doesn't it? I mean, that's exactly what this verse is saying. When our hearts are pure, we will see God for who he is. We'll like, likely recognize him in places we didn't expect. Behavior is not even really mentioned in this verse, but a life lived in harmony and cooperation with God's kingdom is implied. You know, there's a very familiar story from scripture that illustrates this idea really well. The story of a father and two brothers. 
In summary, a father has two sons, and the eldest is faithful, diligent, spends his life and his energy serving the father and working for him, while the youngest is selfish and rebellious, and to the point of demanding his inheritance early, this inheritance that he feels entitled to. And in this culture, when you demand your inheritance early, you're essentially saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. As a matter of fact, you are dead to me. Just give me my money now. He wanted this so that he could chase after the things that the world were offering. Sin, depravity. And as we remember, this doesn't work out very well for him very long. Soon he blows through it all and he finds himself destitute, wretched, and worthless. Sucking up his pride, he returns to home to the father, hoping to at least be able to be restored to the place of a servant, so at least he has shelter and food to eat. But the father instead rushes out to meet him, lavishly restoring him to his former glory and celebrating his redemption. You know, and famously, the older brother is scandalized. You know, I was, I've been here the whole time, serving you and doing it, and I don't even get a little appreciation, and yet for him, you turn it out, you give him your best ring and cloak and have a feast. Both brothers had heart issues. The younger brother, giving his purity away to the wrong people and for instant self-gratification, but the older brother, equally damaging, you know, his heart issue is just doing the right things, just living a life of duty not even truly living and experiencing the love that was around him all the time. Neither brother in their sin could see the father for who he truly was, ever gracious, self-giving, completely loving. In order to see their father truly, they needed to take care of their heart issues. The younger brother must fully embrace forgiveness as it's offered, not a forgiveness brought by servitude or penance, but freely given. The older brother must let go of his pride and his judgment and his misplaced notion of sonship being all about what he can produce and what duties he can perform. A pure heart is humble. It seeks forgiveness when it's selfish. It's willing to yield its way. A pure heart is not striving through the tightrope of life, willing its way, white-knuckling its way through sheer effort. Uh, there's a book called Words from the Hill by Stu Gerard that I've been reading, and it's on the Beatitudes, and so I'll be quoting from Stu a time or two during this sermon. Um, if you've been around... Christian worship music, Stu was the lead guitar player for Delirious. Uh, I could sing of your love forever. I could sing of your love. Anyway, um, I've been listening to music for a long time. But Stu wrote this book, uh, and it says, he says this, the Beatitudes are not about striving. They're about, they are announcements of how God works, where you'll find him and what it looks like when he is there. The Beatitudes are not about condition. They are about the kingdom. As we consider our heart condition, we must ask ourselves, what do I want? 
What do I want in life? What do I want in my relationships? What am I chasing after? The older brother from the story wanted so badly to be honored and recognized that it tainted his whole being and preventing him from seeing and experiencing the love that was there all along. The younger brother simply wanted to chase after instant gratification that the world had to offer, gorging himself on that which does not satisfy. The remedy to both heart issues was an awakening, a moment to be rebooted, to be shaken up, shaken out of their own heads and gaining some perspective from the father that he was freely offering. As we continue, our, our friend Brian Zahn, he has a paraphrase of the Beatitudes that he calls the BZ version, the Brian Zahn version. <laughs> but they're simple, poignant, beautiful paraphrases of these verses. And as we transition from each to the other, I'd like us to hear the, the BZ version of this verse. Blessed are those who have a clean window into their soul for they will receive God when and where others don't. Verse seven, God blesses those who are merciful for they will be shown mercy. Francis of Assisi was riding a horse down a road that went by a leper hospital situated not far from Assisi. You know, and then, as in biblical times, lepers were a rejected lot. Francis was not yet the saint of history that we know. He was in that in-between time where he was feeling the call of God, but at the same time, he was lured by wealth and glory of his profession. But as he was riding along, like many of us, his eyes were down. They weren't on the horizon. Suddenly, his horse jerked to the side. With difficulty, Francis got the horse under control and back on course. But as he looked up, he recoiled because in the road, he saw a man, a leper, standing there. You know, a kind of a wasted form of a person. Didn't speak, just looking at Francis. An instant that seemed like an eternity passed and slowly Francis dismounted, went to the man and took his hand. It was a poor, emaciated, blood-stained, cold hand. Francis pressed that hand and brought it to his lips and he kissed it. The lacerated flesh of the man who was the most abject and most hated and most scorned of all humans in that time. And at that moment, Francis was flooded with a wave of emotion that shut everything else out. That was an early step in Francis's conversion, which took many months, years, but it taught him the fo that following Christ may require us to do things that are hard, maybe even repulsive to us. What Francis didn't know that was that something greater was in him, something greater was prompting him, allowing him, allowing him to love and to greet this man the way Christ would. You know, we can think of countless stories in which people 
who don't deserve mercy receive it, and the transformation is impactful. It's dramatic. You know, so many of our movies and cultural, you know, books and literature have this in it. And because, it's, you know, we love these stories because they give us hope. Because when we see others, maybe more wretched than we are, receiving mercy, it gives us hope that, you know, our little imperfections, surely God can help us with those, can help us overcome. The moments in which we deserve punishment, but instead are shown mercy and grace by others, these are enactments of the kingdom of heaven, the Beatitudes. You know, as Jesus is speaking to those who have gathered on the hill, these are folks who deserve mercy. They're the down and out, the trodden, the over, overwhelmed, the outcasts in this Roman-occupied society. And he's reminding them that by showing mercy to those around us, even if it's a Roman centurion who's demanding his taxes or whatever it is, even when they've offended us, even when they are representing the thing that just drives us the most crazy. But when we provide mercy to others, we're conditioning our hearts to seek after and receive mercy in our own turn. In verse 7, Jesus seems to imply that those of us who are quick to be merciful to others when they need it the most and when they deserve it the least, that in that moment, we will be shown mercy in our turn. But we know that mercy sometimes can be hard to receive. Sometimes we're the hardest on ourselves. Sometimes we just want the punishment so we can go to court, pay the fine, and be on our, road, on our way. It seems that we're being reminded that receiving mercy is a key to the kingdom. As we condition ourselves as givers of mercy, we align ourselves with God's heart, allowing us to see mercy when it's offered to us. Again, Brian Zahn version says, blessed are those who give mercy, for they will get it back when they need it the most. Verse six, God blesses those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. What's the longing of your heart? What do you crave? Do those cravings and desires match up with the way you spend the majority of your time, your days, your weeks? Do you find yourself on the back end of a long day only to realize that you failed to work towards any of your real priorities and that you just found yourself busy with all kinds of other little things? I think we can all relate to that. And we don't have to be perfect at this to know God's love. But it's a challenge for me today. Finding that receive or finding that as God changes our, our urges, changes our desires, changes our, our tastes, guiding us towards mercy and righteousness. 
this is when we begin to feel satisfaction. You know, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture is Isaiah 55. Verse 1 and 2 says, Is anyone thirsty? Come and drink, even if you have no money. Come, take your choice of wine or milk. It's all free. Why spend money on food that does not give you strength, that does not satisfy? Why pay for food that does you no good? Listen to me, and you will eat what is good. You will enjoy the most satisfying food. Jesus is encouraging us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's one of those big terms that doesn't really enter into our common language much these days. But biblical righteousness describes decency and harmony with those around us. It implies right relatedness between ourselves and between others. In some translations, this verse reads, hunger and thirst for justice. Again, decency and harmony. The Hebrew word for righteousness, sedekah, is frequently paired with the Hebrew term mishpat, meaning justice. In the biblical narrative, righteousness and justice are linked. When Jesus' early listeners heard his words about hungering and thirsting for righteousness, they would have understood that Jesus meant doing the right thing regardless of the circumstance and having a disposition towards justice no matter the cost. Once again, from Words from the Hill by Stu Gerard, Jesus, the Jew, was speaking out, a long, out of a long Jewish tradition that God's desire for the world is something known as shalom. Peace, harmony, wholeness, completeness, everything in its right place, nothing broken, nothing missing, proper relationships between us and God, between us and one another, between us and our earth. We know what shalom should look like. I think we kind of inherently have that. Even, with our, even in our community and in our situations and the things around us, even when they don't re reflect shalom, we know what it should look like. When we travel the world, when we head downtown, maybe when we look across the street, when things are broken, we can recognize it. We know it's far from God's intended shalom. But does that overwhelming need for shalom discourage you? Does hungering for it just seem pointless? I hope not. We hope the Holy Spirit would keep us hungering and thirsting for the shalom that God intends. Let's remind ourselves what Jesus is saying. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Not blessed are those once shalom has arrived and is complete. I don't think we'll see that until Christ returns. But blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Blessed are those who have not given up, not become defeated, not stopped trying, not neglecting getting on their knees, not becoming passive. Those who are still going out the front door, those who are working hard at things, 
those willing to have hard conversations. Blessed are those putting their time and their energy and their resources into fixing what they can. Famously, a uh, champion of justice, Mother Teresa, had the following reminder posted on the wall of her children's home in Calcutta. People are often unreasonable, irrational, and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you are kind, people may accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you are successful, you will win some unfaithful friends and some genuine enemies. Be successful anyway. If you are honest and sincere, people may deceive you. Be honest and sincere anyway. What you spend years creating, others may destroy overnight. Create anyway. If you find sincerity and happiness, some may be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today will often be forgotten tomorrow. Do good anyway. Give the best that you have, but it will never be enough. Give the best you have anyway. In the final analysis, it is between you and God. It was never between you and them anyway. Don't give up. Keep hungering for the kingdom. May it guide you and shape you. May it reshape your hungers, the things that you are passionate for and seeking after. Again, the Brian Zahn version, blessed are those who ache for a world to be made right. For them, the government of God is a dream come true. You know, this morning we've been given a reminder to lift our eyes to the horizon and remind ourselves what God's country is really like. It's promises. It's encouragements. How it should be shaping and forming our lives, the way we spend time. You now I pray that we would follow his lead and that we would let him be the great bridge builder, not see the river and just give up and turn around. Allow God to guide us and to lead us. And may these encouragements through the Holy Spirit work to purify our hearts, to correct us, to make us visibly different than the world around us. The Holy Spirit living in you is attractive. It draws people to light. It encourages others to seek the Lord and to experience their own moments of redemption and restoration. May we hunger for the shalom of the kingdom and just seek after it with all of our hearts. Lord God, we love you and we thank you for this encouragement today. God, maybe we are feeling that our hearts are not as pure as we'd like them to be. God, maybe we're recognizing that we're not always as merciful to those around us as we ought to be. 
or that maybe we're not hungering and thirsting for the right things. We're chasing after things that do not satisfy. Lord, in our imperfection, may your grace and your love and your forgiveness flow. Church, in this moment, if there's things that you recognize that the Holy Spirit is calling to mind as we come to the table, I invite you to just leave those things at the altar. Allow the Holy Spirit to reform and to redeem and to reboot (laughs) your heart and your life. And God, as we find ourselves not only kind of wrapping our mind around these things, but allowing them to kind of permeate in our hearts and allowing them to also begin to shape our actions and the way we live and the way we move and the way we spend our time and our resource, that as we do these things, God, we would be encouraged and equipped. We would be met with your spirit who goes alongside of us directing us and empowering us. God, give us courage to not give up. The fight is hard, but Lord, it's worth it, and you are good. We thank you, Lord, for some windshield time this morning. May it guide us and lead us on.